Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. Sociological Images has achieved remarkable success by virtually any metric. Not only is it the most viewed community page on the society pages, but the website also receives around half a million visits every month, is liked by almost 30,000 people on Facebook, followed by over 15,000 on Twitter, and has had work appear in notable news sites including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time, The Guardian, Mother Jones, The National Review, and The Atlantic. In this episode, Lisa Wade, Associate Professor at Occidental College and the editor of Sociological Images, stops by to talk about her work. We discuss some of her favorite posts, her work writing sociologically for other popular outlets, and finding time to produce research and write her recently completed Sociology of Gender textbook, all while managing the site. a year and a half since we spoke to you last, so we thought this would be a great chance just to catch up, talk about what's been going on with social images. Okay. Um, so, but before we get ahead of ourselves, I was wondering if you could just briefly talk about what social images is, in case there's people who are listening who haven't spent a lot of time on the site. Oh, sure. Uh, Sociological Images is a website, it's primarily a blog, and um, we post something every day on the site, mm-hmm. and it's usually a very short, easy to consume a sociological observation. So, um, mm-hmm. and it usually has a picture or a graph or something that we talk about directly. So not just for fun to illustrate, yeah. but um, as an example. So it might be just data, or it might be an ad that we can analyze or something like that. But it's very easy to consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't take a lot of time, and it doesn't talk down to the reader. And so I think people enjoy just getting something interesting in their day. Okay, and by a short post, usually like a paragraph or so. I mean, sometimes a paragraph, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe up to three or four paragraphs, okay. you know, <laughs> online paragraphs, which are pretty short anyway, yeah. um, and then occasionally something a little longer. But, oh, okay. Yeah. So not something that people have to devote an hour of their oh, day to read. Oh, not at all. Okay. Um, so since we last spoke, are there any particular posts that stand out in your mind, whether it was something that surprised you how popular it was, or maybe it was somewhat controversial, or even something that you were just really proud of? Well, I'll start with proud of maybe. Um, So I recently became sort of obsessed with flight attendants as an (laughs) occupation. And um, so I I I read like three or four or five books about flight attendants in history. (laughs) It started with this book called Plain Queer. Yeah. Um, and it was just a history of the male flight attendant, mm-hmm. and um, and then just I just went from there. So I read all these books, and so that inspired like seven or eight posts about flight attendants. And I was in the midst of it when the um, Asiana flight crashed, mm-hmm. the crash landed in San Francisco, and and immediately what I noticed was that cr- the crew, the flight attendants, and the passengers were talked about in the same way. Yeah. that they were all fleeing. Mm-hmm. And then when they talked about first responders, they talked about the firemen and, and, and the other people who came to help. But what I had been reading was all about all of the invisible knowledge that flight attendants have, um, how they are trained to 
they, they're trained in survival survival skills for mm-hmm. Arctic desert jungle and water crash wow. landings. They train um, in fire live fire pits and in actual actual big pools of water. And there's this wonderful yeah. quote from a woman who said, um, she said, I don't think of myself. I'm gonna butcher it a little bit. I don't think of myself as um, as a servant or like you know a sex object. I think of myself as someone who can heave open the door of a 747 upside down underwater in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had been reading about all all of these incredible things that they're prepared to do, and th- and they know this. This is part of their job. The, the the airlines don't want us to think about this because it makes us think about crashing. So yeah. they don't tell us, right? Mm-hmm. Anyhow, so they were being talked of, talked about as if they weren't the first responders. But of course they were the first responders. Mm-hmm. And then late, and so I put up this post, you know, saying like, why are we not giving flight attendants their cre- the credit here? Or why is nobody paying attention to what they did? And um, so I was really proud to defend them. Yeah. And um, what type of reactions did you get to the to the post? Oh, great reaction, great reaction. And then over the next few days, and I don't think this is because of the post. I think it's because we started learning more about what actually happened. Mm-hmm. Over the next few days in the news, they started talking about how they were hacking people out of their seatbelts and fighting back the fire. I mean, they saved lives of people on that plane. They were yeah. carrying people out on their back, and that one woman, who, one, one of them who was doing that had a broken tailbone the whole time. Wow. And they were the last people to leave the yeah. flight, and they are the reason that, that almost everyone survived, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, so I was really proud, and then some flight attendants started following me on Twitter, which made me so excited. <laughs> so I was really proud of that one. Um, when you fly now, do you bring that up? Oh, no, of course not. <laughs> and then if we're going to talk about particularly um, powerful or controversial posts. Yeah, that'd be great. Just, uh, I guess it was just last week, there was a, a po- an amazing post, and I knew when I was putting it up that it was going to make a big impact, and it was mm-hmm. by a... A woman named Cezanne Kohler, who guest blogged for us, and she took images from a, a project called Project Unbreakable, where men and women hold signs of, men and women who are sexually assaulted hold up signs of what the perpetrator of violence said to them. And she counterposed those with the lyrics from uh, Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines, which has won um, at least a couple giant awards for Song of the Summer. And it, it was widely criticized in the media for being quote-unquote rapey, blurred lines being the title of the song, and yeah. um, a lot of the lyrics easily interpretable as, as um, you know, for example, the you know you want it refrain. Yeah. So a lot of people had mentioned this, but Cezanne Kohler, when she ca- counterposed those two things, the lyrics and those images of the men and women holding the signs with, with those words, I mean, it was just really a powerful post, and and it it by far broke every record on social images in terms of traffic. Mm. Millions of people came to see it, and it got a hundred right as of now, one hundred and sixty six thousand Facebook likes. So it just went crazy, and um, and there's over fifteen hundred comments, and there's an interesting wow. conversation going yeah. on in there, and not always a pleasant one, but about you know who has the right to interpret what a song means, and if that song could be interpreted as not about, you know, pushing someone to do something they don't want to do, then is is Cezan Kohler's analysis invalid? Or, you know, I mean, it's, it's an interesting an interesting conversation to be had about interpretation and yeah. power and um, so Do you read was, all do you read all the comments for the posts? Do you I mean that it seems like it'd be overwhelming and Yeah, uh, I I don't. And I 
feel like I should, but it is just it is just impossible. I mean, yeah. I it because social images is a hobby, and and I think there there is just physics, right? Only so much time yeah. in a day. But um, it but is it's really interesting with the comments on a lot of the social images posts because it does attract people who are either really angered about what you or a guest blogger wrote and think that you're being ridiculous and yeah. usually saying, oh, this is a person being overly feminist. Yeah. People get angry on the internet often for anything related to gender, it seems like. Yes, um, um, although although the most con- controversial posts we ever put up are usually things suggesting that maybe it's not okay to hate fat people. That is probably the most controversial things we ever put up. But I, and and I thinking about the comments that you receive back, or oh yeah, really about the comments. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I think it's I think especially I think we probably attract lefty more lefty people than not, mm-hmm. and um, even even amongst people on the political left, it's still okay to be yeah. hateful against fat people. So we get we get some of that. But it does seem like sometimes there's actually really good discussions that take place in the comments, which is inspiring when it happens rather than people just being angry and insulting each other. Well, I think I think what happens in our comment threads are is smarter than what's happening in a lot of other comment threads on the web. I also think that's not saying a lot. Yeah. Right. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so social images is, has continued to be picked up by more and more popular outlets, and you've also begun to write for places like Salon recently. So how did that actually happen for you? Well, we've been really uh, lucky that other sites have found our stuff interesting and thought that it would be useful for them. And so um, we are getting cross-posted. We call it partial syndication uh, pretty routinely. And uh, the biggest one that cross-posts us is Jezebel, which is a a very large, it's like in the top 500 in the world or something. Um, And so that was amazing. And then, and they're still doing that today. And one of the editors at Jezebel um, moved over to Salon and then some some uh, news event happened, and she thought of me as someone who might be able to write something unique for them, specifically for their site. So I've started to do that, and I've done that several times over the last few months, and that's been really, it's a, it's a different audience and, and a different type of writing and really rewarding as well. Was it difficult to find the right style to write for a place like Salon? Because it's it seems much different than your academic work, but also a little bit different than the social images. Yeah. Yeah, so the salon, um, if, if, the, if the typical social images post is under 500 words, you know, maybe under 300 words, the salon is closer to 1,500 words, so mm-hmm. it's much more in-depth. There's much more of an argument there usually, and I have to be more careful with citing, citing my sources. Right? And I usually do that on social images too, but these are more in-depth arguments where I use more example. But I think that the tone is pretty similar. So do you think when people see your the social images post in other places or maybe linked on Facebook, do you think they recognize it as being sociology? Or does it even matter if they do? I think usually, especially if it's not on social images, if it, say if it's on Jezebel mm-hmm. or the stuff I write for Salon, I think usually they don't recognize it as sociology. Um, and in fact, I don't think... It even says PhD after my name in those at those places, so I don't even know oh, if okay. they recognize it as academia. That's interesting. In Salon, they don't have the little thing mm-hmm. on the bottom. I mean, the, if you go all the way to the bottom, yeah, but if, if at the very top it just has my name as the byline. I see. So, and then unless I specifically say it's sociology, I think, which, I mean, I might, I might sometimes, but I think most of the time they don't. And I, on, on, on the one hand, it would be nice you know, for sociology to have more of a visibility and name 
as a thing. But on the other hand, I don't know that it matters that much. I mean, if we're spreading the sociological imagination covertly, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm okay with that. And then maybe maybe later when they encounter sociology and they know they're encountering sociology, mm-hmm. it won't sound so alien to them. I wonder if it were labeled as sociology, yeah. if it would make people less interested or more, more reluctant to read it. Some people, I think. In fact, yeah. I got a piece of hate mail the other day. Um, <laughs> Which is the, the ultimate sign of success. <laughs> um, luckily, this one didn't include any um, sexual insults, but um, most of them do. But yeah. this particular one um, said, I see you have a PhD in something called sociology in square, <laughs> scare quotes, whatever that is. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I think sometimes uh, being on the down low is a good thing. <laughs> do you often hear from other academics and, and sociologists about your work on social images? Um, yeah, uh, well, so sometimes I get emails, um, usually they're with ideas about stuff to blog about, Mm -hmm. and often they come with, you know, an observation, like, um, that, well, a note about how much they appreciate the site being there, Mm -hmm. Um, and usually it's, I think the sentiment that I get most often is gratefulness, because it makes it easier to teach, and Mm -hmm. um, somehow... It, it's helpful for getting students to pay attention and understand what what professors are talking about. So usually that's the sentiment I get. And then yeah. and then when I am able to travel, I, I often meet people who thank me in person. Site's incredibly useful for people who are teaching, whether it's for intro or I used it when I taught theory. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine at the high school level it would be really useful yeah. also. And we have so. um, we have a bunch of course guides now. Mm-hmm. So if, under the four instructors tab, we have a whole bunch of social images material organized according to uh, like typical syllabi. Mm-hmm. So we have sociology of sports, sociology of yeah. sexuality, we just got work and occupations oh, okay. and family and society, and we have research methods and intro. We've, we've got, um, and gender of course, um, yeah, we've, we've th- those I think are especially useful because there's over 5,000 posts there on there mm-hmm. now, so sometimes it can be hard to navigate. Mm-hmm. So the course guides I think are especially great. And thank you to all the people out there who volunteered to make them. So this takes a very large amount of time to run the site, to post every day, to pay attention to the comments. Does Occidental College, where you work, acknowledge the time and effort it takes to keep something like this going? Or is it seen just as a hobby where you find the time if you can? I think it's a hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's seen as, and it, it is a hobby, and I think it's seen that way. Um, when I applied for tenure, I did not um, claim it. As okay. part of my job at Occidental, and it's not part of my job. It, yeah. It's not what I was hired to do. I was mm-hmm. hired to do service and teaching and research, and yeah. I do those things. Um, so, I guess I don't feel like they owe it to me. I think. Or, oh, so if you'd asked me this two or three years ago, I would have said that I think that they're glad that I am able to bring bring Occidental College to the public awareness routinely you know like I'm definitely I definitely help market the college insofar as people like what I write but now I I have a a more careful response to that because I recently used the blog to bring really negative attention to my institution We are being investigated by the federal government okay, for yeah. our handling of sexual assault on campus. So I was writing about that, and yeah. not always in a in, in a critical way. Mm-hmm. So, so um, I think I think that institutions of higher education might have mixed feelings about 
professors on their campus that yeah. are really visible because mm -hmm. they can use that visibility to help or hurt. So if you were arguing that it was something that should be recognized as service for the college, then it would be <laughs> difficult to say that I should be able to be also critical of the college. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. And I and I also I wouldn't I wouldn't call it scholarship. And yeah, service that's maybe yeah. not, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what else do you manage to find time to do thinking about scholarship which you just mentioned? Oh, like do I do anything other than search images? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my probably my most important contribution to sociology is actually about how Americans talk about female genital cutting. So I have, so I have um, quite a few papers about American discourses about female genital cutting in Africa, and really all of them share sort of one umbrella question, which is um, what does all this talk about them say about us? Yeah. And how could we use that talk as a mirror? And that was, that was a really uh, challenging and fascinating and rewarding research agenda. And I just finished, or I'm just finishing up a sociology of gender textbook. Oh, okay. So that'll be out in the fall of next year, and I'm mm -hmm. really excited about that. And I'm sitting on about 2,000 pages of diaries about um, sex and dating on college campuses in the first year of school. And I've already published a little bit about mm -hmm. collegiate sexualities. Um, and so I'm looking forward to doing some more of that as well, yeah. getting into those diaries. Has your work on social images affected how you approach other projects, since you might have a sense of what people are interested in or how to spread somewhat sociological ideas? Um, I think that because I'm paying attention for stuff for social images, mm -hmm. uh, I often come, ac I come across research that I can talk about on social images, and then also you know, it's, it's there for me to use um, if it's helpful in, yeah. a, in an academic project. Um, I think it's definitely taught me how to speak to the public yeah. effectively. So when I, like, so then when I go to write for Salon or when I go to do a talk that's not for an academic audience but is for some other audience, then yeah. I think I'm much better at it for the practice. Do you have any inspirational words for aspiring, critical, sociologically-minded bloggers? Yeah. You know, I think it was just five years ago, I was still getting invited to panels at ASA, you know, <laughs> that were, had titles like, um, should you blog? Yeah. And the, we would talk about whether or not it would ruin your career mm -hmm. if you were a blogger. And I think that's totally gone. I, I mean, I think there is still a, a handful of academics who would look down, you know, w without even thinking about it, would look down on people that are are writing for the general public on a yeah. regular basis. But I think that's mostly gone. I think we've we've grown up as a field. We've adjusted to this new world where um, it's rather normal to share things online yeah. about our lives. And, um, and I don't think that, I, I think that if someone's interested in doing it, they should go ahead. I, I, I would also say that they cannot substitute um, blogging for their real work. Yeah. And like I said, Occidental didn't hire me to do a blog, and and I don't think institutions are doing that. So mm -hmm. they they absolutely must produce the research that they're hired to do, and um, 
and maybe even a little bit more of it than they would otherwise need to to make sure that nobody can make an argument yeah. that they're being distracted from their real job by, by blogging or other, other public mm -hmm. writing. Um, Which can be a very seductive thing because you get your ideas out there quickly. You don't have to cite as much and you don't have three anonymous reviewers telling you to change something. <laughs> it's easier. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot easier than actual academic work. And so it helps you grow, but not in that way. And yeah. so um, I, I wouldn't trade it. Um, I saw a, a study the other day that said it was about very, very productive people. Mm -hmm. And it was about procrastination. And the question was, do productive people procrastinate? And the answer was, Yes, but they do something else productive instead of the thing productive that they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's okay to to spend time doing this, even as a graduate student, if, if, if one wants to, but uh, not, not losing sight of the real task. Well, thank you again for sitting down and talking to us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you.